Well, good morning again. It is good to have you worshiping with us. For those of you that have been traveling along with us, we are in the book of Ezra, and this morning we are going to be taking a look particularly at chapter 6. But before we do, again, for those that are visiting or those that may have been gone for a little bit, I'm going to get us all sort of caught up to speed to understand the context of what we're reading in Ezra chapter 6. To do so, what I want to let you know is Ezra is a book in the Old Testament that I deeply enjoy, not that I don't enjoy other books, but it has its fingers, for lack of a better word, in a lot of the Old Testament. And where I'm going with that is, as you look all through essentially the historical texts as well as the prophetical texts, and Ezra sort of culminates all of them. The story of Ezra is that the chronicler, who many will think is either Ezra or the chronicler, is speaking to events after 1st, 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Essentially, for those of you that are interested, as you turn the page from the end of 2nd Chronicles to the next page, which is Ezra, you are literally moving from one to the other. Ezra is essentially the sequential aspect of what has happened in those books. The purpose of Ezra is to demonstrate God's faithfulness to God's people, however through a tumultuous time. What we see, particularly in the first six chapters, is essentially what God has done to bring back the people of God to their land, to their nation. And in so doing, what we discover is that the people of God experience great opposition. However, in doing so and remaining faithful to God, we then see how this drives the people of God to a deeper sense of awe, reverence, and worship of our king. But how did we get there, and what transpires in the middle? What I want to ask you is a simple question this morning, and that is this. Where is God when I face opposition for my faith in Christ? Has anyone experienced challenge when they stand up for Jesus? Has anyone ever questioned and wondered where God is, particularly after a time where you have stood for Christ? It's a good question, isn't it? Oftentimes we wonder, God, are you working? God, are you there? God, do you care? And to help us see the context of where we are, we need to recognize that what is transpiring in Ezra is that a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, the people of God built a temple. They were looking for a king. God brought about a king, and they were able to construct a temple where they were able to worship God, and things were good. Except for over time, the problem was, as they worshipped God, they also began to indulge into the world. They began to look toward other things than God to fulfill their very need. And over time, what transpired was God said, hey, I'm going to send you a warning. I'm going to tell you through the prophet of Isaiah that what's going to happen if you people continue to turn away from me and toward other idols, that I'm going to bring about destruction on the people of God. I'm going to bring destruction not only on this temple, but I'm going to bring destruction on your land. But also what I want to let you know, in so doing, I am faithful, and I am a redemptive God, and I am a loving God. So not only will I bring about destruction, but I will also bring about restoration, and I will bring about wholeness to you when you return to me. And interestingly enough, you would think that at that point in time, to the prophet Isaiah, the people of God would say, oh, okay, now we get it. But unfortunately, the people of God continue to look, and they look at Isaiah, and they say, pfft. You don't know what you're talking about. This isn't going to happen. And sure enough, a day goes by, and a week goes by, and a month goes by, and a year goes by, and a decade goes by, and a century goes by, and people say, see, we were right. Isaiah didn't know what he's talking about. But then lo and behold, just as Isaiah had talked about, an individual by the name of Nebuchadnezzar comes forward who is the king of the Babylonian army. And the Babylonians invade the nation of Israel. Not only do they invade the nation of Israel, they capture Jerusalem. Not only do they capture Jerusalem, they destroy the temple where the people had worshipped. Not only do they destroy the temple where the people had worshipped, they take the people from their homeland and they disperse them into the kingdom of Babylon. 
And so the people who worshipped, who had their relationship with God, has now been taken from them, but not only has the temple been taken from them, their home, their homeland, and their way of life has been removed. And God says, I'm going to do this for a period of 70 years. But interestingly enough, also through the prophet Isaiah, he says, but after that period of time, I'm going to bring about a king by the name of Cyrus with a different army, and that army is going to take over the Babylonian army, and he will issue a decree that will return you to your land and allow you to rebuild your temple. And coincidentally, no, providentially, the Medo-Persian army rises up against the Babylonian army through King Cyrus and takes over Babylon. Cyrus is the new king, and sure enough, he discovers and realizes that he is called to tell the people of God to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. And interestingly enough, at that point in time, we would say, well, gosh, the king has said so. We're heading home. All is well. And things are going to be good. What's interesting is, is the people of God finally get it right, and they focus, first and foremost, not on the rebuilding of the temple, but the rebuilding of the altar. And the reason that I think that is so important is this is a demonstration that the people of God are focusing on worship of God first before they move to the periphery. They get the worship moving forward, and then they build the temple. And you would think at that time that the story would end and we would all go off into the sunset and the credits would roll and we would see this nice pretty view saying the end and all was well. But just as they start to rebuild the temple, individuals who pretended to be the people of God come forward and say, hey, we notice you're rebuilding the temple. Let us help you. We've got resources, we've got funds, we've got information, we've got intuition. We can help you rebuild this temple, and by allowing us to come forward, what's going to take you a year or two or three or four will only take a year or half a year, and it won't be as expensive to you. Sounds like a good proposition, doesn't it? Faster speed, get the temple up, everybody will be happy, but there's a problem. The problem is, is the people who are coming to say, let us help you, are the people who abandon God at the very beginning. We discover that these individuals who are making this offer are known as the Samaritans, and as we look back into the book of First and Second Kings, we realize that they were the ones who actually caused the people of God to move toward idol worship. And so the people of God have a choice. They can either say, you know what, it's not that big of a deal, God's brought us back, it's fine, these people are here, let's help, let's let the world come in and do their thing, it won't be that big of a deal, we'll get things up faster. A little bit of world and a whole lot of God, no problem. But the people of God realize that that's what got them into trouble in the first place. And so what they do is, is they say, by no means... No, you're not going to rebuild this temple. God has called us to do so. Thank you, but no. We will do it on our own. We will build the temple as God called us to do. And if you have a concern, you can speak to King Cyrus. And you would think that at that point, those people would say, okay, no problem, we'll go do our thing. Just wanted to offer help because after all, we're friendly. We came to you as friends and we'll leave as friends. But what we discover is, is that those people had an ulterior motive. They weren't friends. They were actually enemies of the one true God. And so they leave, and they don't leave quietly. They begin to stir up opposition. And it's because the people of God take a strong stance for God that opposition ensues. And friends, what we've discovered and what we've talked about for several weeks is, is that the moment that the people of God stand up for him, the moment that the people of God say, we are for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the enemy is right behind trying to bring about opposition. It's just a natural thing. We shouldn't be surprised in that. And so the enemy stirs up dissension. And these people who now were just the Samaritans grow into a larger context of a variety of different individuals across the land saying, hey, these people are rebuilding a temple in your land and they're doing it to your potential destruction. They don't want to worship God. They want to destroy your kingdom. 
Oh, and P.S., by the way, you're a great king and we love you. Kiss, kiss, trying to gain the favor of the king. And so the people of God now not only are struggling to rebuild, but they're facing opposition, an unfair opposition, an undue opposition that really isn't what they are after. We continue to discover that that opposition lasts from the period of King Cyrus all the way to the period of King Darius, and even more. But this particular time frame in the rebuilding of the temple is approximately 15 to 22 years. We begin to discover that this isn't just opposition for a day. This isn't just opposition for a week. This isn't a month where you have a bad day at the office. This is years and challenges and struggles. And in those moments, you would begin to wonder, God, you brought us back. You brought us home. You told us that we were to rebuild the temple. But now Cyrus isn't king anymore, and we don't have the backing of that king. And these individuals are coming upon us, and it's becoming harder and harder to do your work. You said, but you're not doing. You promised, but you're not acting. You say in your word, but we can't visually see what it is that you are after. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Oftentimes we look at the word of God and we say, God, you're to move and you're to move how I expect and how I want in my time frame. And friends, nothing can be further from the truth. God will move when God will move. God will do when God will do. And God will move how he wants to move to accomplish his will for his honor and his glory. And friends, in that, praise God because we get to participate in the redemptive story of bringing about the joy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But often it's not on our timeline. It's not on our time frame. And it's not how we want it to go. Friends, I guarantee you somewhere in the middle of this text that the people of God were questioning what God had done. The people of God were beginning to wonder what the leaders following God had put them into. I guarantee you there were conversations when they went to some of the leaders and said, why didn't you just let the Samaritans come and help us build and we wouldn't be in this mess? And interestingly enough, what we come to discover is just at that time, the enemies write a letter. And the letter says, hey, we want to know who the leaders are and we want to know what they're doing. And we want you to be aware of this, king, because what they're doing, we feel, is wrong. And we are hoping that by what we're doing, you're going to see that it's wrong, and we're going to squelch the movement of the building of the temple. And so they write a letter. And last week, we talked about the response. And interestingly enough, in the response, what we discovered was this. What do the people of God do? They trust him. They transparently say, this is what has occurred. We were told by Cyrus to come home, and we were told to rebuild our temple. The reason is, we were unfaithful to God. We did things wrong, but God in his faithfulness has brought us home. You should be able to go and find a decree somewhere in your records stating so, and we trust you to do so. And last week we talked about the faithfulness that the people of God had to have in saying those words. They didn't try to coerce the king. They didn't try to take matters in their own hands. They said, this is what we've been told, this is what we're doing, and this is what God has said, this is where you will find or hopefully find the decree recognizing that, number one, Darius could look at that letter and have nothing to do with it. He could look at that letter and say, sure, we'll do a search. I can't find it, but we did a search, a thorough search. It wasn't anywhere. He could do a search and say, well, here's the real document, but you know what? We're going to change it for political gain. Says here that, yeah, Cyrus did issue the decree, but that's not the best. Look at all of these people who are against what's going on. And for me, as king, politically, it would be better to appease the larger majority than the minority over here. And so we're going to change that, and we're going to say, sure, we found this decree, 
But the decree says that these people aren't supposed to be doing what they're doing, and nobody will know because I am king. The immense amount of trust that the people of God had to have at the end of chapter 5, where they say, go ahead and find whatever it is, is huge. And friends, the reason that I bring that up is to help us to see that when we face opposition, oftentimes what we are to do is to continue to trust in the promises of God and not try to take matters into our own hands and manipulate God to our advantage or to our desire or to our will. What God has said, he will do. And friends, with that, I'd like to start off by a quote from Chuck Swindoll that I think will essentially bring about a wholeness to what we're to speak to this morning. He says this, we must cease striving and trust God to provide what he thinks is best and in whatever time he chooses to make it available. But this kind of trusting doesn't come naturally. It's a spiritual crisis of the will in which we must choose to exercise faith. Friends, the people of God had to choose to continue to exercise faith through this entire scenario, but particularly in events of which we discussed for 15 to 22 years as they strived to rebuild the temple. And the question is, how much can we continue to trust when what we see isn't what we think should be happening. But yet what God has promised will occur. Friends, it's a test of trust. It's a test of the will. It's a test of the true question when we pray, not my will, but thy will be done. Do we mean it? Do we trust it? Do we have full wholeness in the will of God, despite what that might mean for us, despite that might mean that we are uncomfortable, despite that that might mean that what we want in the timeline that we desire isn't what occurs. But yet God, in his sovereignty, is the one who moves. Letter is written Trust is continued, and we get the response. And that's where we are this morning. And friends, what I'm going to show you is that when the people of God trust God with their whole heart, God does unbelievable things that we can't possibly fathom. The response that is given by Darius is Darius's response, the world thinks, but it's sovereignly designed by God, demonstrating the faithfulness of him to his people. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. Friends, where is God when I face opposition for my faith in Christ? God is always there, and God is always near, and God is always working. And what we will see in the fact that the people of God remain faithful to him is that when he responds, he responds in abundance and he responds with authority and he responds with clarity and he responds with greatness. And we should trust him in the moments in between. Chapter 6, the decree of Darius. King Darius then issued an order, and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury at Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ekbatarna in the province of Medea, and this was written on it. Memorandum. In the first year, King Cyrus, the king, issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices, and let its foundations be laid. It is to be 90 feet high and 90 feet wide, with three courses of large stone and one of timbers. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, are to be returned to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. They are to be deposited in the house of God. 
Now then, Tatnai, governor of the trans-Euphrates, and Shethsar Bozani, and you, their fellow officials of that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work of this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. That's pretty darn good, right? Let them rebuild it. I'm God. And I'm going to demonstrate to you that I go above and beyond when you are faithful to me. Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. The expenses of these men are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of the trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the house, uh, sorry, to the God of heaven, and wheat and salt and wine and oil as requested by the priests in Jerusalem must be given to them daily without fail so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Pretty darn good. But what about the opposition? Furthermore, I decree that if anyone changes this edict, a beam is to be pulled from his house and he is to be lifted up on it and impaled on it. And for this crime, his house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to charge this decree, or to change this decree, or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. And if there's any doubt as to who says this, I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Friends, as you read this letter, after years of waiting and years of opposition and wondering where God is, you could not get a better response. And it is because the people of God remained faithful to God and trusted God through the opposition. They took a stand and they stood for him and God in his time and in his way answers and answers in a way that can't possibly be fathomed. He answers the problem in its entirety, he quelches the issue and he brings about his honor and his glory for his name's sake. And so a few things that I want to encourage you in as we walk with God and recognize that at times we may face opposition and wonder where he is, we can look to this story and be encouraged by the fact that when we remain faithful to him, he is there and he will bring about what he says he will bring about in his time and in his place for his honor and his name's sake. The first thing that I want you to see, particularly in verse 1, is this. That when we wonder where God is and we face opposition for Christ, we must remember that we can work for God with confidence when we face opposition for our faith. Friends, that's fundamental. We must realize that we will face opposition for our faith. But not in pride, not in arrogance, but in humility with confidence we can say God will do what he has promised. God will bring about his kingdom. God will bring about his glory. Jesus will return and collect his bride, the church. When he chooses. Friends, I see so many people trying to calculate when God comes home. My question is, rather than calculating, are you ready? It's not an issue of calculation. It's a matter of the heart.
Friends, remember, we can work for God with confidence when we face opposition for our faith. And lovingly, as your pastor, I implore you to stop trying to calculate and start examining your heart. Because God will return when he deems it's appropriate. It may be today, it may be tomorrow, it may be next week, it may be another thousand years. But God will return in glory. Verse one, we see it start off. King Darius then issued an order and they searched in the archives, stored in the treasury at Babylon. Friends, what we need to remember is, is this is now another entire king. We have several years between the issuing of the decree of Cyrus, we have Cyrus's reign, we have another king in between Cyrus and Darius, and now we have Darius, and he comes in and issues this decree. Friends, on a worldly level, we would question where God is, we would wonder what would happen, we would lose faith in the movement of the temple forward, particularly when what? Cyrus is no longer king. Cyrus said it. He's dead. It's no longer going to take effect. Where is God? What is he doing? He promised that this would occur, and now Cyrus is gone. Jesus came. He said he was king, and now he's been nailed to a cross, and he's in his grave. Friends, do we doubt the promise of God or do we trust the promise of God when things around us don't look or feel as they should? And do we walk with confidence, not arrogance, but confidence in who God is and what he has done, is doing, and will do according to what he has said? Friends, we must remember that we can work for God with confidence when we face opposition for our faith, but then also as we look into the next couple of verses, this is because God is fully, fully capable of protecting his work from the opposition of the world. God's not worried. God's not concerned. God made a decree through Cyrus, I will rebuild my temple. And the world comes, and the world moves forward, and the world tries to revert, destroy, discourage, or disrupt the work of God. And friends, before we get mad at the world, who is its master? The enemy. So often we fall trapped to looking at the world as the problem, and we don't wisely look to the world isn't our enemy, Satan is. And oftentimes in our prayers, we attack the world when we should be praying against the enemy. God is fully capable of protecting his work from the opposition of the world. We continue on and we see in verse 2, a scroll was found at the citadel of Ecbatana in the province of Medea, or Media, however you would like to pronounce that. And on this was written on it, no change, no political gain, no value. This is what was said. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be built as a place to present sacrifices and let its foundations be laid. It is to be 90 feet high and 90 feet wide. Interestingly enough, here are the details. This is what they are to be doing. And here's what's amazing. The people of God, before anybody knew, said we're following what God has told us to do and we are acting on what God has said and we're not taking advantage, we're not doing anything to distort or to pursue something larger than we should. To be 90 feet tall, 90 feet high. Pretty amazing that what? They go and they look at the foundation and they measure it out and it's exactly what it is. We're doing what we've been told. And God affirms that to the world and demonstrates his sovereignty. 
with three courses of large stone and one of timbers, the cost are to be paid out of the royal treasury. Also the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, are to be returned to their places in the temple of Jerusalem. They are to be deposited in the house of God. The letter could stop there. It could end. Hey, here it is. Here's the answer. That's great. They can rebuild. And we're not going to address the issue of opposition. We're not going to address the issue of aiding. We're not going to address any, anything above and beyond. But God goes further. And so friends, before we get into that, what I want to let you know is what God has said he will do, what God has said he is doing, and what God has said he has done. And when the world ebbs and flows, twists and turns, and when we wonder what God has said, is it actually happening? And when we wonder if what God has said is in the right timeline, and we wonder if what God has said is in the right means of how we think it should all play out, and we wonder if what God has said should happen because an individual is no longer in authority who said a decree, and we wonder if God is truly working on our behalf, Friends, go back to this book and realize that God is indeed doing what he promised. Friends, not only should we remember to work for God with confidence when we face opposition for our faith, we should also recognize that God is fully capable of protecting his work from the opposition of the world. The world will do what it can to oppose the work of God, but God has overcome the world. I think I remember that somewhere from someone who said it himself. And perhaps that individual was God. Friends, we continue on and we see in verses 6 to 7 that it gets better. It gets even better. God not only says, am I going to protect you and am I going to provide for you, but I'm going to give to you in abundance. I'm going to go above and beyond what you have asked because you have remained faithful to me. Friends, at times, God accomplishes his will by taking what is meant for evil and using it for good. Oftentimes we look at the world and we see its evil and we wonder where God is. We wonder what God is doing. We wonder why there is evil in the world. And friends, what I want to tell you is this. Rather than wondering, recognize the promise that God has made. And he says, I will use what is meant for evil and I will bring about good in it. We look at verses 6 and 7. And it says this. Now then, Tatnai, governor of the trans-Euphrates, and Shethanar Bozani, and you, their fellow officials of that providence, stay away from there. Those of you who issued the decree or the letter to me in the first place, trying to continue your opposition to the rebuilding of the temple, those of you that are trying to distort the work of God, Thank you for your beautiful letter of which you tried to kiss up to me. You're not to do anything. You're to stay away from them. Hmm. Those individuals wanted their letter to be used for evil. But God in his sovereignty uses Darius to bring about good. P.S. By the way, don't interfere with the work of this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Right there, he answers the faithfulness of God's people of what got them into trouble in the first place back when the Samaritans said, let us help you. Now I, Darius, say, no, let them do it. Don't interfere. And so often, God will accomplish his will by taking what is meant for evil and using it for good. I want to ask you, and you don't have to be specific, but has anybody ever experienced something that you are doing what you could by being faithful to God, and in that, you faced opposition, and you faced essentially unfair opposition? 
my question to you is, in remaining faithful to him, have you watched how God will take what has been meant for evil and use it for his good? Friends, if he's done it once, he will do it again. Because God is one who brings about restoration, redemption, and rejoicing in our Savior Jesus because God is good. The other thing that I want to encourage you in is this, and this is what I love, particularly in verses 8 through 10, is this is where, this is like, okay, I'm giving you the Sunday, right? How many of you have kids? How many of you, like, when you give them ice cream, they get all excited, right? How many of you, when you give them ice cream and say, oh yeah, let's do a little bit of whipped cream, do they really get excited? Okay? How many of you, when they come forward and you say, let's give them a little bit of whipped cream, but you kind of go, do they get really, really excited? And then how many of you watch when they get really excited because you go, oh yeah, not only this, but we're going to put a maraschino cherry on top, right? They were happy with the ice cream, right? But God gives the whole boat. That's what's going on here. And friends, you're getting way more, way more than whipped cream and a cherry on top. You're watching God demonstrate his faithfulness to the people of God and his provision to them as only he can do. Verses 8 through 10. Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. Previously, we watched and we wondered, will they have enough power? Will they have enough people? Will they have enough revenue? Will they have enough to do? We had an offer for people to come forward and help them build, and we see them reject it. And God notices that, and God says, not only am I going to give you ice cream, I'm going to give you whipped cream and a cherry and this is how I'm going to do it. The expenses of these men are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of the people of God. No, the trans-Euphrates. To get out of the revenues of the trans-Euphrates, that's what's going to help pay for this. I want to bless them so that the work will never stop. Whatever is needed, whatever is needed, you're to give it to them. Young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven and wheat and salt, wine and oil as requested by the priests in Jerusalem must, not should, must be given to them whenever you feel like it, no, daily as they need. Every need that they have is to be supplied to them. And we say, wow, thank you, Darius. No, God is the one who has put Darius on the throne. And God is the one who is doing the provision. Why? Purpose, so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of even better, of heaven, not pleasing to the gods. So yeah, I'll give this to them and they can do what they want, but here's the caveat. They're gonna need to worship other gods, right? Oh, it sounds so good. We've got the whipped cream. We almost have the cherry, but then it's like, nope, you gotta do your laundry before you get to Sunday. No, here it is. And it's to the God of heaven. It couldn't get any better. And P.S., pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. It's interesting because as I read that, there are two ways that you can take it, and to be honest with you, I don't think it's either or. I think it's a both and. But a lot of commentaries will say that this is a point where Darius begins to realize that truly the world's God is God and says, hey, pray for me as well. And others will say that this is a political means by what he does is to say, hey, you know, just pray for us as well because I am king. I personally, as I look at this, don't think it's an either or, I think it's a both hand. I think he's beginning to realize, yes, this is good and pray for us politically, but I also begin to think that he's looking at it and saying, you yeah, know, there's something going on here. There's something bigger that I need to realize and recognize. And it would be good to potentially have these people praying for us. 
Friends, what we see is that we'll remain faithful to him and he will often bless us with an over and abundant heart. Everything that they asked for and more has been given to them right here in this decree by Darius. You can do the work. You can do it on your own as you have requested. And P.S., by the way, provisions will come and provisions that were not known and provisions that were not asked for and provisions that were not requested. Friends, I want to ask you, when you've faced opposition for God, have you experienced a time when God has provided? Have you witnessed a time when God has provided way more than you could possibly fathom? Friends, don't forget that. That's God. That's God working. That's God demonstrating his faithfulness to you. And friends, what I want to tell you is that's the greatest thing, but I'm also going to tell you the enemy absolutely hates it. And the enemy is going to do what he can to bring about discouragement, destruction, division, disappointment, whatever it might be. Because the enemy wants to say, no, it's not God. The enemy wants to come forward and say, see, when you follow him, how bad it can get, how hard it can be. Let's take that a little further. See what happens when you follow him, how bad it can get and how hard it can be. Friends, the biggest destruction to the enemy was the faithfulness of Jesus to the Father when he said, not my will be done, but thy will be done. When he remained faithful to the cross so that we might be forgiven. Had Jesus brought himself down from the cross, the enemy would have won. Friends, when we remain faithful to him, he often blesses us over an abundant heart. Jesus goes to the cross and dies upon it and rises from the grave so that we might have eternal life. That's the ice cream. But the cherry and the whipped cream on the Sunday is not only eternal life, but you are welcome as a son or a daughter with full rights and privileges into my kingdom. And you will be with me throughout eternity in it. There's your whipped cream and there's your cherry on the Sunday. Because I want to abundantly bless you for being faithful to me. And friends, we continue on in verses 11 and 12 and we see that God often brings about a means of protection and provision that we simply cannot provide. One of the things that I am so encouraged by but blown away by is the ending of this letter. And before we get into it, how many of you, when you face opposition or challenge in your walk with Jesus, move forward immediately to you wanting to figure out the problem, provision, protection from it, or to overcome it, or to get around it? Okay, I'm raising my hand, because often that's where we go. That's often where I have been entrapped. But what is amazing is to watch and to say, God, you will provide the means in your time and in your place to protect and provide for your people. It doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't mean that everything's going to go right. But watch what happens here. It's one thing for Darius to issue the decree and say, you know what? We found it. Cyrus was right. You can rebuild. It's a whole other thing for him to say, not only can you rebuild, but I'm also saying that you and you alone can rebuild. It's a whole other thing to say, not only can you rebuild, but you and you alone can rebuild, but P.S., by the way, we are going to help through provisions to do so. But there's still opposition. There's still challenge. And there's still struggle. Great, we get to do this, but as we're doing it, we still have the pressure of these people on us, opposing us, doing the work that we're trying to do. Furthermore, 
I decree that if anyone changes this edict, if anybody tries to mess with this, if anybody tries to come in and change what is said, a beam is to be pulled from his house and it is to be lifted up and, impa and impaled on it. Quite a big response, isn't it? God is using Darius to say, enough. Darius could have said, you know, I just want to let you know that if anybody imposes this, we're going to kind of be mean and we're going to take some money from you. We're going to give you a little slap on the wrist. No, we're going to put a stop to this. You want to oppose the work of God, go right ahead. Here's the consequence. The beam from your house is going to be taken down and guess what? We're going to have shish kebabs tonight. It's the answer that God gives to demonstrate his faithfulness. It's the answer that God gives to demonstrate his clarity. It's the answer that God gives to say, I am God and I am the one who is in control. And P.S., by the way, I want you to know that for that crime, their house is to be made into a pile of rubble. This is a polite way of saying that this house is to be sent into the dung heap, which is translated in Hebrew. Send their home over to the dung heap. God answers the need of his people. And he answers it in its entirety, and he answers it in its fullness, and he answers it above and beyond what any of the people of God could imagine. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there. I love this. Right here is the recognition of God doing his work. May God who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or destroy this temple in Jerusalem. And if anybody has any questions, if anybody wants to know, if anybody wants to come and say, who said this? I, Darius, have decreed it. And this is the final thing that I love. He could have said, I, Darius, have decreed it. Great, so now we're going to do this. But what's the time frame? How long is this going to take? When is this going to take effect? How will it be? When will God bring this about? It could have ended there. And Darius, no, God, is wise enough to use Darius to say these last words. Let it be carried out with diligence. Do not let it delay. Friends, when God moves, God moves. And when God moves, he does not delay. The challenge we have is trusting when God will move. I bring this to you and I ask a heart check. Friends, when you face opposition for your faith in Christ, do you question God's will and wonder where he is? Or do you first go to him asking for his protection and provision and then trust him to do so? Father, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's hard. I don't know where you're going. This isn't what I'm thinking. This isn't the plan that I have. This isn't the desire that I want. This isn't the result that I thought I should get. This isn't what should be happening. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands. My friends, is it this isn't what I want. This isn't what I desire. This isn't what I think, but I trust you. And I trust your hand, and I trust your guidance, and I trust your direction. Where is God when I face opposition for my faith in Christ? Friends, when we remain faithful to God, your take-home truth, we can rest with confidence that he will bless us and take what is meant for evil and use it for good. 
He has done it time and time again. He will continue to do it until he chooses to bring his church home. Oh, the take home truth one more time. When we remain faithful to God, we can rest with confidence that he will bless us and take what is meant for evil and use it for good. Different take home truth? Okay, that's okay. True take home truth. <laughs> when we remain faithful to God, we can rest with confidence that He will bless us and take what is meant for evil and use it for good. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you this morning, and we thank you for the book of Ezra. Father, it is a beautiful book. It is not an easy book. Father, it is a book that demonstrates the reality of the walk with our Lord and Savior Jesus. Father, you are a good God. You are a loving God. You are a caring God. You are a God who will bring about the restoration of your people. But Father, we all also know that in walking with you, it's not always sunshine and roses. Father, we recognize that right behind you is the enemy trying to do what he can to seek to destroy, distort, and disrupt what it is that you are doing. But Father, we also know that you have overcome the world and that Satan has no power or authority over you. And so with that, Lord, as we go about our work for you, may we walk with confidence, trusting indeed in the promises that you have given. Father, as the world ebbs and flows, twists and turns, goes forward and backward, as we see wars and rumors of wars, as we see all of these things happening around us, it can be easy to become overwhelmed and wonder indeed where you are. And Father, in those moments, may we recognize that as the world swirls around us, you are right there in all, above all, through all, and over all, because you are the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord of lords, the kings of kings, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And may that bring peace to our hearts, recognizing that through your love, mercy, and your grace, you have chosen us to participate in your kingdom through the giving of your Son so that we might have eternal life through his sacrifice. Father, what a beautiful story that is, and we are grateful to be able to participate in it. Father, use us as you need to rot and bring about your kingdom so that you might have glory, honor, and joy. Father, it's not our will, but it is your will. We love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. And we ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.